0: You're tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number fifty-six. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the premier rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. Find out more about the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp experience by going to pineridgegrousecamp.com and by Dog Trick Callers. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and much more. Today, we feature the Dogtra Pathfinder if you are in the market for a GPS tracking caller if you want to check out the Dogtra pathfinder gps tracking capabilities free detailed satellite imagery easy location sharing for dogs and dog owners history playback custom alerts and a whole lot more you can get it in a track and train version or a track only that is the dogtra pathfinder find out more about it at dogtra.com and by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food for Sporting and Hunting Dogs. Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food is made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance in your bird dog. Find out more about Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food at yukonuba.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters. Gordy and Sons Outfitters is family-owned family-operated, located in Houston, Texas. They've got the gear, guides, the expertise to get you what you need for where you're going, and you can find out more about it by looking up Gordy & Sons Outfitters at gordyandsons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels Unparalleled Pet Protection, Dakota 283. They've got a whole lineup of kennels in dog oriented products from the molded in handle to the framed metal doors, military grade resin and design technology, the weight of the kennels, ventilation and heat retention. Every detail about the Dakota 283 kennels was designed and executed to make the best product they could make. And if you head over to Dakota283.com today and you purchase a kennel, be sure to use the promo code Northwoods50DD. That'll get you 50% off one of their Dash products, which you can also find at dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Randy Fusey. Randy shared one of our recent episodes of the podcast on Facebook. Thank you, Randy. Project Upland t-shirt headed your way real soon. And just like we do every week, I remind you, the listener, that you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. We got a little different spin on it this week. Courtesy of our guest today, Hank Shaw, I have in my hands a copy of Buck Buck Moose, autographed and inscribed for Project Upland by the one and only Hank Shaw. Up for grabs to next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave the podcast a review, subscribe to the podcast post, share the podcast on Facebook, in Facebook groups, all over the place, or send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. Send me an email at nick.larson@northwoodscollective.com. at northwoodscollective.com. Again, that is a signed autographed copy of Buck Buck Moose by Hank Shaw to the next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, Issue 1 of the Project Upland magazine has hit newsstands. That's right, it's available at Barnes & Noble. If you're not a subscriber and you want to get your hands on it, check your local Barnes & Noble. They might have one there if they're not gone already. If that is the case, you can always go to the projectupland.com website and subscribe via our shop. Alright, let's do it. On today's episode of the Project Up and Podcast, I am joined by the one and only Hank Shaw from Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. He probably needs very little introduction if you've been around the hunting space for any length of time. You've probably come across Hank somewhere, but if you haven't... You're going to want to pay attention to today's episode because Hank is a hilarious dude. He's also a hell of a cook, and he was a really fun podcast guest. So let's get into today's show, and welcome to the Project and podcast from Hunter Angler, Gardener Cook, Hank Shaw. We're live, Hank Shaw. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you on this Friday afternoon?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me on.
0: My pleasure, Hank, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and the Project Upland Podcast listeners. Really excited about it. Why don't you put us on the map and let us know where we're speaking to you from, Hank?
1: I live just outside of Sacramento, California uh, in the town of Folsom, which if you are a Johnny Cash fan, you uh, you may know it from the prison.
0: Ah, uh, yes, yes. Very, uh, very common song. Good one to sing along to. And I would imagine that many, many upland hunters have uh, bobbed their head to that song on the way to the next bird cover.
1: I bet. I bet. It's also where people uh, from California go after they shoot men in Reno just to watch them die.
0: <laughs> I see what you did there, Hank. I love it. <laughs> well, awesome. So, Sacramento, California, what are you guys, 75 and sunny right now? I mean, you, you know where I'm at. I'm in Duluth, Minnesota. We're covered up in snow. Although, we almost hit thirty degrees today, and it feels great, so you know it's all relative
1: isn't that weird like that like it's very it's super relative i mean so it's it was for us it was sort of vaguely cold uh, a couple of days ago, and it was in the high thirties and low forties and and everyone's like, "Oh, it's so cold out, but yeah you know I guess today' it's not too bad it's about fifty five degrees and sunny, finally we've had so much rain um that like half the state's flooding
0: Wow. Yeah, well is that uh is it real forested in there or are you are you south out of that where forest fires aren't really a big deal?
1: It would have to be a really badass fire to get us because I'm in the, I'm kind of on the the Sierra Nevada foothills. So, you know, I'm a half an hour from national forest, but uh, just a bit outside. It would it, it's possible, but it would have to be a pretty bad one.
0: Yeah. Well, I know in that case rain is a good thing, but yeah, it can be uh it can be a lot. But yeah, it's it is crazy how relative temperatures and weather can be and
1: well sure you come you come come dove hunting with us in yuma arizona on uh, labor day it'll be 114
0: oh that would be that would be scorching for a minnesota boy but is is that a dry heat as they like to say
1: Uh, yuma's not that dry actually because it's a big agricultural area so you know it's not louisiana but it's it's definitely more humid than you think it is
0: yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that sounds really, really hot. It's when it's 80 degrees here, I like to make sure I have a lake that I can jump into.
1: <laughs> it's so <laughs> hot that, that, that the, the tap water is over, is about a hundred degrees. It's Oof. crazy.
0: Yeah. That's wild. <sighs> Well, Hank, the last time you and I caught up, uh, actually, you know what? Let's let's talk Pheasant Fest real quick because you were there. Sure. You and I, you and I didn't get a chance to connect um, while we were there. But how was it? I know you gave a couple of seminars, and uh, Jennifer, one of the people that we had in the Project Upland booth, was all excited. She came up to see you. How was uh, Pheasant Fest for Hank Shaw?
1: I love Pheasant Fest. I mean, it is, uh, it is the only show. Well, it's basically the only show I do, and it's definitely the only one I look forward to, and it's. Uh, I'm a life member of Quail Forever, and uh, while I like the mildly invasive uh, Manchurian chicken, uh, I'm I'm a big quail guy and a a grouse guy and otherwise upland, but, um, you know, it's just the people at Pheasant Fest, everybody involved, everybody from the the people just coming to the show to the people who work for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are just, they're just really nice people. I've never gotten any kind of Holier than that, or any kind of blowback or or whatever from anybody from either of those organizations, and I got nothing but good set things to say to them.
0: Yeah, I will second that for sure. Th- this was the second time that I had been there, and you know, it's kind of for guys like you and I, it's right in our wheelhouse. I mean, it's it's fun to be there for sure, but I will definitely second what you said about the Pheasants Forever employees. One of the guys that we worked with to set up our booth, um, Lucas. He kind of was, he answered all my questions when we were setting up the booth, all the logistical stuff. He was really, you know, on point as far as getting us squared away and he stopped by the booth gosh I don't know three or four times throughout the show and he followed up with me like a week after the show sent me an email and said hey sorry I didn't get to spend more time hanging out at the booth but it was great to see it and it's just like man I mean I I was impressed that he stopped by three or four times just to say hi it's it's I I definitely get that vibe that you're talking about it's just a really cool place to be what was the nature of your seminar at pheasants pheasant fest this year Hank
1: I do three, um, so I speak twice a day uh, for each of the three days, and I try to do different things, so I'm not repeating myself all the time. So I did three different seminars. Uh, I do one that I kind of do every year because everybody seems to really like it, and it's basically a PowerPoint and question and answer thing on how to get more out of your upland birds. And so it's everything from you know the the second you shot it all the way to freezer care and cooking and all that kind of stuff, and people really like that one. Um, i did another on the uh the uh, fry on frying is an art um everybody kind of thinks they know how to fry food and i'm sure everybody listening to this can fry food with some degree of skill but there's a lot of little tips and tricks to be very very good at it and and i was teaching that and then another one uh i was teaching people how to build a better stew so much like flying like frying it's it's one of those things that everybody thinks you know how to do but there's a lot to the difference between a a great piece of fried food or a great stew and one that's just you just kind of threw together
0: very interesting topics. i wish we had i wish we had the time to cover them all here today but i think we will i will definitely circle back on a couple of those and and ask you because they kind of align with a few of my questions that i've got for you later sure uh while we're on the topic of Pheasant Fest and appearances, I know that you said that's kind of a uh, kind of your one show. Any other any other uh, public appearances, book signings, or anything like that coming up for you? Oh, thank God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good for no, you. No,
1: <laughs> I I did seventy two events in thirty nine states and five Canadian provinces last year. Wow. Um, and I, you know, I've been offered a couple of things, and I'm just, I uh, frankly, I'm pretty burnt. I'm, cr- I'm a crispy critter right now, and. Um, it was, it was hard to get up for pheasant fest, but you know, once you're there, you're there and yeah. you know, it's, I need a chance to kind of recharge and, and get my mojo back and be more creative and, and, and get the, cause I don't want to be on the road tired. Um, you know, I want to be on the road I want to be excited to talk with people. And, and the reason why I do get so much energy out of it is because I learned so much from the people who show up to the events. Like, yeah, I've got a lot to teach, but you know, you'd be a fool if if you didn't realize that there are tons of people out there that know stuff that you don't. And then by sharing that, and especially coming from a place of like, well, what is it that you do? And like, we all just get smarter that way. And it's just such a better way to, you know, just be good at what I do is by, you know, sharing what I do and getting tidbits and knowledge and 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 tips from from people all over North America, not just not just the United States, but U.S. and Mexico as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I hear you. That's you know, it's kind of the nature of of the podcast. You know, I I like to love to have conversations with people like you and share it, but we get a ton of feedback from our listeners and and get out and about at a place like Pheasant Fest and you can chat and get more feedback. I mean, yeah, that's definitely how we all learn and grow. Now was that travel Related to the last book, Pheasant Quail Cottontail.
1: It was. It was the. It was the world's longest book tour, uh, and it'll probably be the last time I do that many events. I mean, that was a. That was a bit much, but I really wanted to, to basically let as many people as possible know that Pheasant Quail Cottontail was out there, that it existed, and and I think it's our best book to date. Um, it's our biggest book to date for sure, and it just was a. It, I mean, we can get into this, but then one of the things about the Upland world is it's so diverse and it's so exciting no matter where you go. There's something really interesting about the Upland world. You name it, just put a pin on a map and and, then we can just start talking about it for like hours, you know?
0: Absolutely agreed. And with that segue in mind, I want to circle back to our conversation a couple of weeks ago. You and I chatted, you were coming off, you were on the tail end of An upland bird hunt that I would say definitely falls in the obscure category. Tell, uh, to remind me and, and tell the listeners what you were chasing.
1: Oh, is it the chachalacas?
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the chachalaca, which is a the coolest bird name ever. Um, yeah, really, really, you know. Okay, so I'm gonna I'll let the cat out the bag. We were unsuccessful. Yeah. But what happened was, so we went down. There's only a few counties in south texas where you can even chase them i mean they're all over mexico and central america but but in the united states you have to be at the bottom of the bottom of texas to find them and they're a chicken-like bird so they're a gallinaceous bird related to the, you know loosely related to quail and pheasant and they're really super loud like to the point where if anybody here speaks mexican spanish um a slang in mexican spanish for somebody who talks too much is a chachalaca and because okay. it just they're just loud bird you know definitely google google chachalaca talking and it's just like you know just sadly though the polar vortex hit the united states that weekend and it froze chicago solid and that it dripped all the way down to the mexican border where it was about 42 43 degrees and pouring down rain And these are tropical birds, so tropical birds really don't like that weather, and we didn't either. So we heard maybe two of them, but we never even saw one. So we're making plans to go back because there's a couple of cool things that we want to do. Then, you know, this was in February, and there's very little in season in February. So we saw white-tipped doves, which is a fourth species of dove that you can hunt in the United States. And again, it's one of those things that you have to be down there to do. Um, lots and lots and lots of whistling ducks, and I've yeah. never shot. I've never shot a whistling duck, so I need to get that on. And I need you to, to go down there and do that. And so we want to go back and do white-tipped doves and chachalacas and uh, and whistling ducks. Maybe fish for big old garfish and just just kind of soak up that area. It's just a really amazing part of the United States. I mean, it's you know, Matamoros is right there and you know, you know, you could basically go to dinner in Matamoros and come back, you know, that night. It's just, it's, it's Mexico's like right there and it's kind of a cool environment.
0: Yeah. Like you said, you know, upland hunting, throw a pin on a map. And that's, that's one of the, one of my favorite things, even though I haven't had the chance to get out and hunt a lot of the diversity of upland hunting, it's just one of the things that really draws me to it. It's that diversity of habitat and the birds that inhabit the different areas. I mean, there's, there's so much flavor to. Upland, honey i I had to Google it. I got chachalacas up on the computer next to me there They're a neat looking bird. What was the plan of attack was there were there bird dogs involved or how did you even hunt them
1: No, you don't want dogs anywhere near them because uh, a uh, an eager dog is gonna chase him into the jungle and okay so you're you you've hunted woodcock right yes so you know the old joke with woodcock hunting is that if you can throw your hat in front of you and it hits the ground, your 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 cover's not thick enough. Gotcha. Yeah. Which is not always true, but it's definitely true in the Minnesota North Woods. So you know you're working through, you know, you can imagine yourself in a woodcock woods, working through these these alder thickets and these just narrow saplings, and you've got your gun pointed at the sky and in tight, you know. So it you're in tight and you're kind of snaking in between these things, and then you're waiting for the woodcock to come up. And the good thing about a woodcock is he'll go straight up and then away. And so a chachalaca is not like that, but it's just as thick. So chachalaca moves, sounds and even kind of looks exactly like the little teeny dinosaurs that ate the fat guy in Jurassic Park.
0: No way.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to look at it, like basically go down and look at that scene and they're like, "Oh my god, those are chachalacas." <laughs> and and so they they hop a lot. They hop you know from branch to branch, they run around on the ground a little bit. And they're kind of, you know, at chest height to, to, you know, body height in this jungle. And it's literally a jungle. So where the Woodcock Woods is vertical, the Chachalaca Woods is not. The Chachalaca Woods, you've got things coming from all crazy directions. And you've got a ton of vines. So the thing about vines, if you've never worked your way through vines, is vines are, as you may know, super strong. To the point where a vine, even as thin as your pinky, you're not getting through it. You know, you can cut it, but you're not going to just push your way through it. Oh, and did I mention everything has thorns?
0: Uh, <laughs> how did I and know you were going to say that? <laughs>
1: everything has thorns. So in a way, it was good that it was cool out because I was wearing a, um, I tend to wear, I don't wear a lot of camo, but I, uh, I was wearing a pretty heavy Filson uh, cruiser jacket. Yeah. And those things are absolutely wonderful in that kind of hunting and thank god i had it because the guy a friend of mine who had it was wearing like a t-shirt got torn to pieces so the plan is to hunt them right in the beginning of the, the day and right at the end of the day when they come out of the jungle and to try and bushwhack them when they come out of the jungle and if that doesn't work you got to go in after them and you know i shoot a real short i shoot a Frankie veloce so it's a little short um 20 gauge is it actually works really well in there, but if you are going to do that, you need a, a shotgun with a pretty short barrel.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Wow, that's that is uh definitely I can see some of the uh some of the parallels with woodcock hunting, but yeah, horizontal cover, thorns, strong vines. Snakes. <laughs> so, yeah, lots snakes. and lots of snakes. Did you see them or was it too, <laughs> no, close it was for too cold? But yeah. but in the
1: normal weather you'd see them
0: yeah yeah that's uh that's one thing when i was hunting down south the the snake factor was it's new right it's not something that i'm used to but uh yeah that's i'm looking at the pictures again they definitely kind of embody that uh you know dinosaur look i mean you can definitely see that in the chachalaca. it's a that's a neat bird so next year. yeah next year you already got your yeah you reason to go back which is very cool and Speaking of woodcock, I, you had the chance to come up here and hunt rough grouse and woodcock with Matt Soberg and uh, Brett Amundsen, right? Was that last I fall?
1: Did. I did, yeah. I, I've hunted the Minnesota Northwoods a, a great—I mean, I started hunting in Minnesota. Oh, ah, okay. And that was 18 years ago. And I uh, I, 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 I always love the Minnesota Northwoods. I can't get enough of it.
0: Given that you'd been hunting up here for a while, the uh, the rough grouse and woodcock were already checked off the grand slam list, correct?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that's <laughs> I shoot that because I, I you know a I enjoy eating both of them, and b I just like being in that kind of environment
0: yeah for sure yeah i did catch the uh i caught the segment on uh prairie outdoors and saw the show that was cool uh but tell me a little bit about the upland grand slam because that was another thing that we were talking about and i don't think that's something that comes up too often uh in the sport of upland hunting but that was one of the reasons that you were chasing the Ch- Chachalaca, along with yes. a whole bunch of others i'm sure but tell us about it
1: so about it, six months eight months ago. I was kind of thinking about my plans for, you know, this past season and then seasons coming forward. And it, and it occurred to me that there's only about a dozen species of small game animal that has a season and a bag limit. So that's my only restriction. It's got to have a season and a bag limit on it Okay. that I haven't shot, cooked, and eaten. Like there's like a dozen. And that's it. And it occurred to me, huh, you know? i could get every single small game animal in north america before i'm 50 which would be pretty bitchin and so now i'm like yeah yeah i want to do this it's because it's it's a it, it feeds a couple of things one it feeds the cook in me because the the diversity you know i mean you can kill all i don't know what is it 27 big game animals and like 24 of them all taste more or less the same you know like sure there's differences between elk and whitetail and but they're not super profound. It's not like the difference between, you know, an eider and a, a pintail or or a pintail and a quail or a quail and a squirrel, you know. So, so from a cook's perspective, there's, it's just an exciting adventure. And B, I kind of have always zigged where everybody else zags. And the idea of possibly being the first person ever to do this uh it's kind of exciting because it's you know i just finished the grand slam of squirrels and i think i'm the only the second person to do it um the first person's a friend of mine named jonathan odell and he got written up in field and stream for it so it's this quirky you know it, it's kind of the opposite of a, the chest thumping great white hunter yeah like you know and and i kind of like that it's like yeah. yeah man i shot all the squirrels they're delicious <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: awesome <laughs> so yeah for finish line is in sight man what uh what were the how many did you check off uh this season
1: oh well this past season was kind of iffy because of the book tour but um so the, the so the next things i got to work on and some of them are surprising too too because it's of, of my geography. So I'm I'm going to Alabama um next week actually to hunt an eastern uh, an eastern turkey. Uh I've shot I've shot uh all the others except for ah no I still need 3 of the turkeys actually. So I still need the eastern, the goulds and the osceola um and the Himalayan snowcock. Um uh, and I'm a little bit I'm not I'm just I'm I'm kidding, but like a good friend of mine got one this year. And, like, I've been riding him the whole time. And, and Jim, if you're listening to this, thanks again for the invite. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so Jim got one. And, and so I'm kind of – that's on the list. And I know some – one of you guys got one, right? In Because I thought I, I, thought yeah. I saw yeah, I was
0: going to say, so the Project Upland crew, um, Travis Warren, host of the Upchecker podcast, Matt Harding, and I think those are the two hunters, and then, of course, the uh, cameraman, Will Sensing, if I forget somebody, I apologize, but yeah, those guys went up there, and they were successful, so we'll have to, uh, we should put you in touch with uh, Matt Harding. Yeah. He could so, take you up there, I'm sure. So
1: he's on the list. Uh, yeah. Let's see. The others would be uh there's a couple of of uh arctic rabbits I haven't sh- haven't yet shot. Uh there's the swamp rabbit in Missouri that I haven't shot. Um there's the purple gallinule and and uh there's two rail species I still need to shoot. Um and I god, I'm trying to think there's got to be something else. Did
0: but it's, it's the, Did you say the ptarmigan cuz that that came up when we were oh, talking? Oh yeah, there's
1: there's two species of ptarmigan that I'm, uh, I'm going to go chasing in Newfoundland this coming okay. October, uh, the, the willow and the rock. So I've shot the whitetail ptarmigan and uh, they actually appear in pheasant quail cottontail, uh, cause I managed to get them in Colorado and, but the other two ptarmigan I'm going to be chasing in October in Newfoundland.
0: Awesome. Well, that's uh that's a definitely a neat pursuit, man. It's a, it's, <laughs> It's gotta be gotta be fun, and and of course now that you can, uh, like I said, finish line is in sight. That's uh gives you some nice objectives and uh, gives you some good reasons to get out and see new places, huh?
1: It does, it does. It's, you know the other kind of mechanical thing that's really good is because I get asked. You, you have no idea the kind of weird questions I get asked on a daily basis. <laughs> but but I, I mean, you'll get a kind can i mean i've literally had people like oh yeah i just shot a whole bunch of these purple gallon oils. how do you cook them and like if i haven't uh, soon i'll be able to like well when i hunted purple gallon oils and i cooked them this is what i did with them so i'll have this kind of on the ground real world cooking experience to be able to help people through you know especially if you're if you live way up north and these ptarmigan are very common to you the fact that i've a, been cooking more or less my whole life, and and B, I now have experience with this particular animal, makes me more helpful to them.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think, you know, obviously with with your background and the stuff that you've done over the last, you know, 5, 10 years or more, the, the fact that you can go and hunt a new species and then apply everything that you've learned to that species that might be of really high interest and value to uh, a local or a native there. I mean, that's that's really cool. And I can totally see the the excitement that you would have for for being able to go do that. All right, Hank, I think like I have picked up some of your story. You know, I've heard you uh, kind of kind of going way back, I guess, in the relative relatively speaking i used i heard you talk to bob st pierre on fan outdoors you know you'd call into the radio show and i've heard you on various podcasts so i've kind of picked up some bits and pieces of your story but really i'm I'm curious what came first upland hunt or hunting or cooking were you a cook first yes okay
1: so i i get thrown in the same bucket with Stephen ranella quite a bit okay and the way I describe the difference between the two of us, um, is that he is a hunter who cooks and I am a cook who hunts. And so it's, it's a bit of a difference in emphasis. Um, so I started cooking, you know, being cooking as an amateur, as a home cook in my teens. And then I worked in restaurants in my early twenties and, uh, So that's I have actual professional training in the kitchen, and you know I was never I never ran my own kitchen, you know I never owned my own restaurant, but you know I got to the level of a sous chef, and 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 so you know I know my way around a professional kitchen, and you know it doesn't scare me if somebody hires me to do appetizers for two. And then I was a newspaper reporter for eighteen years and including that's that's what brought me to to minnesota i was a an investigative reporter for the saint paul pioneer press back in the early 2000s and so when i i don't know if you know or not but most people do is that the newspaper business has kind of taken a header over the last decade yeah and so i got laid off from my newspaper job in california in 2008 but even before that I had started to kind of inch my way back into the kitchen. Um, yeah, I started Hunter Angler Gardener Cook in 2007. And uh, HAGC is the core of everything I do. So um, where some people, the core of what they do is a TV show or a podcast. Mine is this website. Um, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook is the largest source of wild food recipes on the internet. There's more than a thousand recipes for you name it on there. And as long as... Uh, along with all kinds of other essays and such and so i've been doing that now for 11 years and uh, so 2019 you know in this fall will be the 12th year and as it got bigger and bigger and bigger i got nominated for a james beard award in 2009 and then again in 2010 Um, and for those of you listening who don't aren't familiar with it the james beard award is the oscars of the food world so there really aren't any other bigger awards in the food world than the beards. And I was lucky enough to win it in 2013. Um, and so this has been, I've been doing this full time since 2010 and I've gone back to the kitchen. Uh, now I kind of refer to myself as a, as a, a grandparent chef so what I mean by that is, like, if anybody out here is listening who's is, is a grandparent, uh, think about what you get to do. You get to go to s- your, your kid's house and play with your grandkids and get them all riled up and give them a bunch of sugar and treat them super well. And then you can leave. <laughs> <laughs> so I do a lot of these special events. I do, like, one-offs and everything. And, and I, I really, really do enjoy professional cooking still. Um, and, but, I, but at the same time, I'm very glad that I don't have to do it for a living.
0: Yeah, that's really nice that, that you've been able to kind of work in the balance and, and hopefully focus on the things that you love to do and, and, uh, keep a good, good, healthy balance. I mean, that's, uh, that's awesome. So would you say that you, you kind of touched on it in that saying that Stephen Rennell is kind of the hunter who cooks and you're the cook that hunts. So when you, when you hunt now today, do you pretty much view everything through the lens of a cook or is it not quite that black and white?
1: Um, when I'm hunting. Yeah. Um, I don't hunt what I don't eat and I don't hunt what I'm not in need of. So there will be a time during every duck season because in California, our duck season is last 107 days and, and we're the Western epicenter of, duck, of duck hunting. So, um, Holly and I will chase birds all the time, sometimes multiple days a week there will be a period in every season where I'm like, ugh, I've got enough ducks. I don't really need to hunt ducks. Um, and I either shift my attention elsewhere or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, it it also sort of goes into the same thing where like, okay, you know, I, I mean, I like venison and I, I try to shoot a deer every year, but I'm not one of those guys who's going to go shoot six deer in a season because of the, for the adventure of it. Sure. Um, I just don't, I don't see the point of that um, especially because what am I going to do with all that meat? And I mean, there are people here like, all right, give it away. I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to take something's life just to give it away. You know?
0: Right. Yeah. I I get that. I follow that. And it's, yeah, end of the day, you've got to, you've got to kind of keep an eye on what, is valuable to you and what you have the capacity and the resource to do, so that makes sense and and that's not to say that donating venison to somebody that is in need is not a you know that's a bad thing. obviously, we're not saying that, but yeah, I follow you um
1: now, yeah, the one thing about that also is I live in the west, so right. uh, you know Easterners, you know there are a great number of people in the who live in the Eastern states who just for herd management have to shoot six or eight or nine deer. And of course you're going to give away. Like that's why hunters for the hungry is such a big deal in the East, the West, just a different
0: animal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always amazed. I, I just spent the week earlier this week. I was with two, uh, two deer hunters that hunt the Eastern States. And it's just as a, as a Northwoods, Minnesota, Wisconsin deer hunter, the, the amount of deer that they tell me that they've shot over the years and, and do shoot. It's just, it's amazing. But that's, uh, that's the population, uh, you know dictating that for sure
1: oh yeah it's a rare year where i shoot more than two or three big game animals a year i think i shot six in one year once but typically it's like one or two or three
0: yeah that that's interesting perspective i was just kind of curious so so with that in mind when did the hunting come into play for you
1: i started in minnesota in 2002 um and I started because a guy we probably both know, a guy named Chris Niskanen. Okay. And Niskanen was the uh, outdoor writer for the St. Paul Pioneer Press when I was in, on the investigative team. And we'd fished a lot because I've been fishing since, you know, I don't know. There's pictures of me as a in diapers fishing. Um, and my mom is from Gloucester, Massachusetts, so I come by fishing honestly. And that's been part of what I've done for my whole life. Same thing with with picking wild plants and things like that. But hunting didn't start until uh, I moved until I, I guess it was 32 years old. And so I'm one of those adult onset hunters. I just did it before most people talking about it today did it. So I kind of got lucky in being a, a bit ahead of the curve. It felt like closing a circle because when you're a really good fisherman, you're not just a guy with a rod and reel in your hand. You know how to read water. You know how to... you you understand tides you understand seasons you understand moon phases and weather and wind and and underground structure and there's this there's an enormous amount of knowledge involved in finding and catching fish that has nothing to do with the rod and reel if you're a good fisherman and when i went hunting for the first time with chris it was a pheasant hunt in south dakota um he had that knowledge on land so he could read land the way that I could read water and it was it uh, kind of a light went off my head I'm like this is this is this is a, the next piece of that I mean it's literally the third leg of the stool between you know fish and fish and animals and plants it's the third leg and I felt like I lacked it and I needed it
0: that's a really neat way to look at things and I could see how that would Kind of complete that circle. That's 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 pretty awesome. So was it kind of a, you know, once you dipped your toe in the water with Chris, was it pretty much no looking back from there?
1: Yeah, he basically created a monster. Well, it's his fault, man. i mean He kept, like, cause <laughs> cause he's a good hunter, so he would like, oh yeah, I want some extra pheasants. You want some extra ducks? Here's some venison. <laughs> so you know, I'm already a cook, right? So I'm like, right. so here's the other thing. This this is kind of an important thing to understand about where I come from. So I'm the last of four kids, and and I'm the last of four kids by seven years. So my mom and my stepfather at the time really liked good food. And when it's only the three of us left, well, you can take the kid to the nice restaurant, especially if the kid likes the good food too. So I was fortunate enough to be exposed to Michelin star food, like really good, good food Yeah, you know, at age 10 or 12. And you know, I remember being a, a, a real young kid dressing up in a suit and going to New York City to eat at Le Cirque back in the early 80s. So in uh, that all dovetails into game in the sense that if you eat at restaurants like that, especially in the 80s and the early 80s, you are exposed to venison and squab and duck and pheasant and quail in an haute cuisine. And so what are ingredients to much of the United States and Canada our humble ingredients are high-end ingredients in french cuisine and so i never had a view of any of the things that i chased as anything other than that they are that they're a wild luxury item and that they are to be treated as such and of course you would pluck a quail and of course you would pluck a pheasant and of course you would pluck a duck because you want that skin and that fat because that's the most enjoyable part when you eat it at a nice french restaurant so right from the very beginning i viewed game as something special and not as um uh, you know so a poor man substitute for anything
0: that's that's very interesting thing to point out and i think it speaks to how important it is how people get exposed to game, right? So like you got you got exposed to those types of foods in really the very the very best way I think in the sense that they were put on a pedestal, they were treated like a luxury item whereas if you if you are completely unfamiliar with hunting or wild game cooking any of that stuff and you go somewhere and you eat something that's not that great, you know, that first exposure could really dictate things. So it's that's an interesting way to see how the kind of the puzzle of hank shaw comes together usually we ask people about their upland bird hunting stories on the show not necessarily their cooking story but that's kind of kind of cool to see how that uh you got inspired right away
1: yeah i mean like you know the first game i remember cooking as an adult were pheasants that niskanen gave me and and i didn't really know understand the art of plucking an upland bird which we can talk about because it yeah. is absolutely an art um I didn't understand it at first. So I ripped the skin horribly on like two of the three and I managed to, I just took my time on the third and got it. And i like, Oh, this is really hard. Um, but I wanted that skin and, and it's just, it's, I mean, right now I'll put it this way. Um, Holly went to, uh, preserve for, uh, a, a postseason hunt for, uh, she's, she's the vice, uh, she's one of the, the, she's the head of communications for the California waterfowl association. So, you know, she's, kind of a higher up in in conservation in the west here so she was on one of those sometimes you do those social hunts and we don't normally go to preserves so anyway she brings back these five birds and the five birds i mean it's a put and take right so they're super fat and you better you better damn well believe i plucked every one of them because guess (laughs) what i'm going to be able to do two amazing things with these pen raised birds that you that is the, the the singular advantage of of uh, of a put and take bird is that I'm going to be able to render out probably uh, about a cup, maybe two cups of pheasant schmaltz. And if you have never cooked with chicken schmaltz, like which is chicken lard, basically it's, it's rendered chicken fat. You can do this with pheasants or ducks too. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Like, like if, and, and, and forget duck fat, like I love duck fat. Don't get me wrong, but rendered chicken fat or pheasant fat, is unbelievable. Wow. It's unbelievable. It's like like you know, go Jews, right? Because like 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 we owe schmaltz to the to Jewish culture because they didn't they couldn't cook with lard, right? And and so it's just amazing stuff, right? So I'm going to be able to get a fair bit of it from these birds. And what's more, I'm going to be able to make crispy pheasant skin tacos. Let that sink in for a second. Yes, yeah. crispy <laughs> pheasant skin tacos on homemade tortillas you're welcome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious, Hank. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So look, okay. We, we gotta, we gotta dive in there because we brought you on here to talk about cooking a little bit and, and, you know, complete confession. Like I am such a simple wild game cook. I mean, I have like the whole world is my oyster. Like I could, I could do so much more. And when you start talking about that stuff, I mean, it just sounds awesome, but Starting with, with pheasant quail cottontail, maybe you want to give, I mean, I think we talked about it earlier. I don't know if you want to give a, like a high level description of what people can find in there, but then let's go upland birds, kind of ABCs.
1: Sure. Where do you want to start?
0: Uh, well, along the lines, along the lines of, of plucking the bird, right? Like that's, sure. that's something that, that somebody. Right. Cause that's may, the gateway to a lot of this. Right. Right. So let me give you
1: the, the easiest tip that I can give you. And I learned this through experience. Upland birds, and I'm talking about all the chicken-like birds. Let's just go through them. All right, so start with doves and pigeons. Yeah. Okay. Doves and pigeons are the easiest birds to pluck in the world. Uh, it's one of the reasons why your dog doesn't want to bring them back because the feathers fall off in his mouth. Uh, they I can pluck a dove in 90 seconds. It's ridiculously easy. All you do is just is you. I mean, the problem with people. When they come to upland birds and uh, of any kind, and they have experience plucking ducks and geese, they they manhandle the bird too much because the skin on a duck or a goose is considerably stronger than sure. it is on an upland bird. So you've got to actually you, you just you know be nice, guys. Just like just take the feathers off, you <laughs> know. And and like I, I taught Andrew Zimmer on a on his TV show how to how to do doves. And his first one, he was just kind of manhandling it, and he just like, you know, rubs his thumb right through the skin. Like, eh, just chill down, chill down, you know, you'll, you'll get it. Yep, it's just, yep. <laughs> it's not that hard. Um, so there, that's the easiest, a dozen pigeons. And then the next easiest is a Jake turkey. I typically do not pluck gobblers because that skin is really, really thick and leathery. Uh, but hens in the fall and then jakes in the spring, uh, those are fantastic. Plucked, and they're very easy to pluck you can just you know the skin's hard enough where you're not going to rip it so those are the two extremes now the hardest are all the other birds that we're talking about well woodcock are pretty easy to to pluck actually yeah you can pluck a woodcock fairly easily um, but all the chicken like birds there, the problem is they have delicious skin but it's very very thin so the time that everybody wants to pluck their quail or their pheasant or their chucker or whatever is exactly the wrong time to do it. Which is to say the evening after the hunt or the morning after the hunt. So people are like, well, isn't the bird gonna get go off? Like, no, it's not gonna go off. So first of all, be a you know, hunt as you would. And then in the truck, don't pile your birds up get them out of your vest and line them side by side. So they're sort of just one bird in one layer. Yeah. So that's going to let them cool off quicker. So you drive home, put them in a, well, I'm I'm assuming it's normal fall temperatures. If it's normal fall temperatures, put them in a plastic bag and put them in the refrigerator. And if it's, if it's hot, get them to room temperature and then get them in the fridge so kind of do it in stages because you because otherwise they're going to sweat inside the bag if they're if
0: they're warm interesting so don't don't change the temperature too drastically
1: yeah like ratchet it cooler and cooler until you get to uh refrigerator temperature okay now this is the joke i always use like okay so what you want to do is you want to line your birds in the refrigerator faces out at the eye level of your children so you (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so after the screaming subsides yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, no but in all seriousness just you know throw them in the refrigerator in a plastic bag or whatever um for two to three days so let's say my hunt was on saturday so saturday is day one sunday is day two monday is day three so you're gonna want to pluck them on monday afternoon or monday evening or tuesday or wednesday anytime you do it before that and the feathers are going to be stuck to that skin so tight that even I will rip the skin and I'm very good at this um it's just not it's just not easy to do it until that bird has rested out and it'll be safe it'll be perfectly fine um now now the the, the thermal inertia of a really big bird like a turkey those you would have to those you would have to um eviscerate first every other bird is holing in the feathers it'll be fine and i've done hundreds of birds like this it'll be fine so you can leave them in there as long as five or six days maybe seven tops um but uh but that's it and so you you do one bird at a time and you sit there and you just you you just pluck it and now the thing with all these gallinaceous birds are they've got fancy feathers and they've got under feathers. So the fancy feathers are basically all the feathers that have some color on it. But in between those fancy feathers are generally kind of grayish under feathers. The little grayish under feathers come off super easy. All of the other feathers you have the you have the, 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 the potential to rip the skin. And so the nastiest areas are going to be on the on the outer edges of the breast and on the and on the thighs, on the flanks of the thighs. So those are the two areas because they're, they're covering skin that you want to keep and they the very long. And sometimes you just have to pick those one at a time and okay. you, but it's like pop, 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 you know, when you're doing it. And so it's not like pluck, pluck, pluck. It will be when you start, but once you get, I mean, the joke is that the first thousand are hard, but <laughs> which is true. But, uh, I, you know, you, I would say you'd probably be in good shape after about, six to six to ten birds before you get it right and there's a rhythm to it there's a zen to it and you know it takes about 10 minutes a bird when you're good at it um but it's you know the other way to do it and this is not as good is you can pluck it like a chicken which is to say scald it and you get a big pot of water at about steaming temperature. So it's like 140, 150. So it's not simmering. It's just steaming. Yeah. And you, and you dunk the bird in for three seconds or so and then let them drain, dunk them, drain, dunk them, drain until you can pull one of those tail or wing feathers right out. And then you you pluck that bird real quick. You know, it'll pluck real easy. It's wet. It's messy. It's stinky. Um, but it's much faster than dry plucking.
0: Now, if, if one were to pursue that method, is everything else prior to that the same? AKA yes. the aging and the fridge and all that stuff? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right, cool. And and all right, so you mentioned that aside from a turkey that's going to be basically gutted beforehand everything else is going to be whole and intact so we're not we're not clipping wings we're not clipping feet everything is is whole whole bird in the fridge and it's going to be as we pluck it at any point in the process i mean are you clipping the wings before you start plucking or anything like that no okay.
1: so when you start plucking so you're plucking uh, on pheasants and birds of similar size i will pluck both digits of the of the wing um, because pheasant chicken wings are unbelievable, um, okay. and they're worth your time now on anything smaller than a pheasant, I'll keep the drum mat and you always want to keep the drum mat no matter what the bird is for structural integrity. So a, it's a nice little bite of meat, but B by keeping the drum mat on, you keep the skin around the, the base of the drum mat intact. And what that does is that protects the breast meat. And so everything about an upland bird is is you need to prevent it from getting dry. And so if you clip your wings closer than the drumette joint, then that skin is going to retract, and you're going to have some of the breast meat shown, you know, uh, exposed when you cook it, and it'll, yeah. do, and it'll be more prone to dry out. Yeah. And plus, it just looks better. And, you know, there's there. I mean, there is such a thing as aesthetics. You know. And so similarly, when you cut the feet off. So if when you cut the feet off, you cut at the joint, you know. So you you know, birds have knees, right? So you cut yep. right in the middle of that of those knees, and it'll come off cleanly, and it'll be like a normal looking drumstick, no matter what size and what bird it is. And it just it just looks better. And there's just a, and I am firmly convinced that I can show you, and I'll 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 send you a picture of some plucked pheasants I did the other day. Cool. Uh, I, I, that I can show you that this is a wild bird plucked. And you look at it, and you're like, I want to eat that. And if you had raggedy, le- raggedy wings and raggedy drumsticks, sure, it'll be probably taste fine, but it won't look right. And people who aren't eating buckets of pheasants would be like, ew. And so there's this, you <laughs> yeah. know, you eat with your eyes before you eat with your mouth.
0: Oh, you're, you're so right, man. And that's honestly that with a lot of the, a lot of the cookbooks that have been put out recently, I mean, it's, you know, the photography, it's, it's a, it's a big, big deal. And you're yeah. so right about that.
1: Here's a trick with the legs. So the the legs, there's a, um, you know, it's a, they're, they're micro turkey legs basically. And so we all know that turkey legs, the sinews are, are very difficult to deal with. Um, and then on a turkey, You pretty much have to – oh, all right. So let me back up a second. When you're dealing with the legs of any upland bird, especially any bird of size like a pheasant or or a turkey, always separate the thigh from the drumstick. Always, 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 always. Because the thigh is the singular best part of a pheasant by far. Like just ask anybody you know, hey, what part of the chicken do you like best? If they say boneless, skinless chicken breast, you don't want to know them because they hate food. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know it's true. I mean,
0: like anybody who who
1: says boneless, skinless chicken breast is their favorite part of the chicken hates food. Yeah. And you know, acceptable answers are are wings, drumsticks, and thighs. And most real people (laughs) who like food will say that the chicken thigh is the best part. Well, a ditch chicken is just a wild chicken, and the thigh of a pheasant is unbelievable. It's just only one bone in it. You can cook it just like a chicken, and it'll be fine. And it's and you know it has a really good skin coverage as well. So it's just it's it's the perfect bite from a pheasant. There's so many people throw them away, and it's just crazy. Even if you skin your birds, just do that. It's there because the skin thighs are better than no thighs. Sure. So anyway, so you got that. So you got a whole bunch of drumsticks, right? So with turkeys, you've got to braise them until the meat falls off that those sinews that's really the only thing you can do with them but with pheasants and with like uh, sage hands or rough grouse and and sharpies especially because they, they those guys run a lot um, there's a trick you can do it doesn't always work but it works pretty reasonably well so you take a knife and you cut at that knee but not all the way through you cut down the knee towards that what is effectively the achilles the big tendon on the back of the of that knee joint at the base of the drumstick. So you break it down, and then you're like, oh, look, a lot of tenu- tendons. Exactly. So with your offhand, you grab that drumstick. This is best when it's still on the bird. It's, this is, it won't work if you, if you take it uh, off the bird. So you grab that drumstick, and with your other hand, you, you spin that foot around and around and around, like three or four or five times. What you're doing is you're coiling those tendons, and you're loosening them within the drumstick. And so it takes a fair bit of strength to do this. And so there are people who say, oh, you just pull it right out. Either they're Andre the Giant or they're just a lot stronger than I am because it's just not that easy. But when you spin that foot around the drumstick, it collects all of those tendons around each other like a rope. And you can yank in either direction. And you will pull out virtually every tendon in the drumstick of a pheasant that way. Wow. I mean, it's not easy, but it'll work. Um, and it's, you do that, or at least try to do that on pheasants that are, you have magically shot in the eyeball or something like that, where it's like, there's not a mark on it because those are your roast birds.
0: Oh man. So let's talk roast. I mean, I guess I want to cover like the way that you talk about plucking these birds. I mean, are you basically doing that to every single bird you shoot? Upland? Yeah.
1: Unless I blew it up. Unless you you blew it up. Unless I blew it up. Because think about the bag limits, right? So the only bag limit in the upland world that it makes this daunting is quail. And you know cuz there I mean it's 15 quail in some states. Sure, a lot. sure. Yeah. So uh, I don't know that I've ever shot 15 quail in one day. Uh I have shot 10, but I've never shot 15. Um 10 quails that you know that's, that's gonna take you some time. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean it, cuz it's, it's it'll take you 8 10 minutes a bird. Um and it takes a bit longer for a pheasant. But you I mean think about it, three pheasants really really you don't have time to pick three pheasants, really. Come on. You know, when you're, when you're good at it, that's half an hour of your time Yeah. for the joy that is, you know, a skin on pheasant thigh or the even bigger joy that is a crispy pheasant skin taco or, or forget the taco, just crispify the skin in a, in a, in a pan and then eat it. Like if you're the kind of person who fights over the crispy skin at Thanksgiving on the turkey, then you need to be listening to this.
0: Yeah, that's, man, it's, it hits on a lot of things and I'll be the first to admit that I am not the guy that has made a, you know, been known to utilize the entire bird and pluck every bird. And it just, when you, the way, when you put it like that and you just make, you make it sound so delicious, like I really, really want to do it. And, you know, if nothing else, I mean, shoot, we, we, we owe it to ourselves and the birds to give it a shot
1: yeah you know I'm not gonna say you're a bad person if you skin all your birds. I'm right. gonna say you're a bad person if you breast out all your birds because you know the this the skinned legs are awesome yeah um uh, but try it right you know you you know if you've massacred a bird or not like yeah. if you you know birds that are that are shot well you know wing shot or head shot or only you know a couple pellets in them those are the ones that you want to give it a go at you know if you you know especially if you go to a put and take um you know you everybody here has pillowed a bird. And yep. if you do that, well, that bird, you know, the only thing I know to do with a bird like that is to, you know, you skin it out, you rinse it real good, and then you use it as as a soup stock. It actually makes a very, very, very good soup stock because there's all that meat on it. It's been ripped to pieces, but it's still meat. Whereas most people who make uh, chicken broth or 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 any kind of broth with birds, they use already picked carcasses. And so this is actually going to give you a leg up and it's a good use for a mistake.
0: We definitely don't have time to go through all of the nuances here. And quite honestly, I think that's where pheasant quail cottontail steps in. So that's a, that's going to be a really good resource for people, but a couple more things. Tell me about the roasted bird. So we've got the bird, we followed your process. We've got the bird plucked. Let's say it's a pheasant or a grouse. Um, I think my friend uh, Bailey, peterson was i think she had roasted some woodcock i think she had plucked some woodcock and she had those uh she posted some pictures and again they just looked awesome so tell me uh tell me about that
1: so all upland birds benefit from brining uh you don't necessarily have to but it's an insurance policy because brine, the process of brining allows a, uh, a cooked meat to retain more moisture than it would otherwise uh, it also pre-seasons it so an overnight brine of like a quarter cup of kosher salt and a quart of water uh, that's pretty good basic brine. You don't need to get a fancy about it. And then you, if you want crispy skin, I mean, really this is, this is the perfect roast pheasant or the perfect roast grouse. You do that, you do that, that brine overnight, and then you get up in the morning and you take that bird out of the brine and you stick it on a cooling rack or a plate in your refrigerator and let it sit there all day while you go to work. So that gives it a chance to dry out because wet meat won't brown. Sure. So then you put it in, uh, I put it in a cast iron pan, and I usually prop up the birds with celery sticks or something like that so they don't tip, you know, so their whole birds tend to be tippy. So you put something to keep them from not tipping over. You know, you could put it of a bed of uh, root vegetables. Okay. And you have two choices. You can, this is with medium-sized birds like grouse and pheasants, you can start at a roaring temperature to crisp skin or you can finish at a roaring temperature to crisp skin i tend to start and then finish so i will preheat the oven to like raging hot 450 500 degrees and put those birds in there for 10 minutes 15 minutes tops then i will take them out and lower the oven to like 325 and with the door open The reason why you don't just leave them in there while you've dropped the heat is because that heat won't just won't drop fast enough. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Conversely, if you do the high heat later, you take it out as it's going up and then you, you cook the bird all the way through in the, in the lower temperature. So what that does is that two step gives you the ability to have crispy skin and then not overcooked meat. Now your internal temperature that you're looking for, is about 160 degrees. It's a little over on the breast, and it's a little under on the legs, but it's within the realm of edibility. And you know, an ideal temperature for a pheasant breast is closer to 150, and the ideal for a, uh, a thigh or a drumstick is closer to 165. So if you split the difference, you'll be in good shape.
0: Do you find that I'm just logically in my head. I'm thinking: if you start with the roaring temperature and finish with the lower temperature, do you find that that maybe seals in a bit of the juices and flavor a little bit better? Is that why you kind of lean that way, or not necessarily?
1: Uh, no, because I it, the the it nothing really does seal in juices. That's a myth. But okay. um, the whole high heat at the front end gives first of all it gets your oven nice and hot, and second of all sure. it gives you a head start on the crisping, and then. When you na- then have it in at the cooler temperature afterwards, the skin is going to continue to sc- to crisp, and I find I get a crispier skin when I do the high heat in the beginning than I do at the end. Okay. And you know, I worship at the at the Church of the Crispy Skin. <laughs> you and me both, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, love it. Um, so all right, so you mentioned one thing there that it reminded me of a question. I don't know where I was driving driving my truck or walking my dog. I knew that I was gonna have you on the podcast and I wanted to ask you this. Uh when we talk about tools for cooking, temperatures are so critical to not overcooking, but making sure we get them in the right range. Do you have a recommendation for some kind of a touchless thermometer? What do you use, man? How do we make sure that we get the most out of our game meat?
1: I use two things. I use a, uh, just a simple probe thermometer. Um, You know, they're cheap guy. Get one that makes you happy because that's how you would check this pheasant in that case. You'd have a, you'd make, you pierce it in a very thick part of the breast or at the base of the thigh and if you're going to check it a second time put it in the same hole so you're not you know making swiss cheese out of your pheasant okay um second a laser thermometer i use a laser thermo i don't use thermometers with meat anymore because i'm a jedi and i use the force um (laughs) seriously you do you know you do 500 of them and you're like done. yeah yeah and uh that's why I have Yoda as my avatar and and, and Facebook. Um, <laughs> but,
0: Cook <laughs> mmm, you are, Padawan.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> Nicely done.
1: <laughs> and uh, but the other one I you do use a lot is a laser thermometer, like to check oil temperature, especially when oh, you're
0: frying. Oh, okay. Those okay.
1: things are weighted gold.
0: So those aren't those are not going to get you internal temperatures of meat. No,
1: it's just going to okay. hit that. It's going to give you the temperature of the surface of the skin.
0: So then, did they have? Like I don't wanna get down a wormhole with that stuff, but do they you know, if you have a laser temperature just knowing how people market their products, I'm guessing they're gonna maybe market that as a, you know, a do it all solution. Are they gonna tell you like if the surface temperature is this, then you're probably good to go internally? No, you need to. You need to. All right, cool. Well, come on, man. It's twenty five. It's twenty
1: five bucks total for both of
0: them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and (laughs) I've already got the I've already got the probe thermometer, so I'm good to go there. And I'm I'm happy to. I didn't know if we were uh, if I was missing out on some sort of super high tech gizmo.
1: No, I mean those are good. And then the other thing you need, just in general, if you're going to be a good cook, is a scale. Uh, A scale that measures to one gram. Yeah. And the reason you need that is not for your cocaine because that's illegal. Um, but for, (laughs) I'm a child of the eighties, but, uh, but really you need it for sausage and circuitry and that kind of thing. Because I will tell you this, a, if you do a five pound batch of sausage with 36 grams of salt versus 32 grams of salt, I can taste the difference. And if you're using tablespoons and teaspoons, you're never going to get there. So it's, those things cost literally like seven bucks on Amazon.
0: Can said scale also be used to measure the weight of uh, vintage bird guns?
1: Uh not the same one because they usually only go up to five pounds.
0: Ah, uh, gotcha <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm looking to looking to kill two birds with one stone there.
1: Yeah, that would be a hard one though. I mean I bet you I bet you there is a scale that can go to like twenty pounds and that can go down to the gram. I'm sure if you look, you'd find one, but typically uh, the kitchen scales are very cheap and very small
0: that is something I have been meaning to get for a while because again, yeah, I like to If you have
1: Amazon prime. You can have it by Sunday. Oh,
0: gosh, yes, yes, <laughs> I could, I could, I've, I've got a web browser open next to me. I could it's order it right cost now. It's the of Hank. a
1: pint of beer, dude. <laughs> That's
0: like nothing. And I've got beer in my fridge next to me, Hank. Oh <laughs> uh, man, this is, this has been fun. And again, like I said, we, we, we do not have time to cover all the nuances of this stuff. So I hope, we kind of uh,
1: let's come back and uh well let's let's do some species specific stuff over time let's do that
0: let's do that heck yeah that would be awesome um before i let you go i do know that we were chatting about a future project of yours not necessarily coming right down the pipeline but do you want to talk about that your next uh next right written project Oh, you mean the fish book or the no, essay no? It was hunting essays, yeah.
1: The essay book, yeah. So yeah, I'm actually working on two different projects at the same time because they occupy different spaces in my brain. One is a one is another book like Buck, Buck, Moose, or Pheasant Quail, Cottontail, and that's a fish a fish and seafood cookbook, which will definitely include uh, freshwater as well. So that's one thing, and the other is I'm working on another book in conjunction with Holly, um, and it's sort of the big thoughts about hunting. It's both of us started to do this pursuit of ours. And I never really call hunting a sport because it's kind of, you know, typically people don't die in sports. And and it's just it's a bit more of a of a heavier pursuit than a sport to me. So that's like that in and of itself should inform a bit about what I want to write about is that um we were both adult professional writers when we started hunting and we have a fair bit to say about this thing of ours. And what we want to do is we want to create a a book that every hunter who reads it be like, yes, this is exactly what I mean and what I'm trying to convey to my non-hunting friends. And then in, in a perfect world, non-hunters would pick this book up and say, oh, I get it now. and And especially given the fact that we're in a very tribal situation right now in the United States where, you know, there's team A doesn't like team B and that sort of thing. And and it's extraordinarily important to fight that because we're all Americans and there are you know liberals and conservatives and blah 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 and I don't want to get too far into politics but there's all different kinds of people and and they're all different kinds of people who hunt too and so the the, the that fracture should never be partisan and that fracture should always be one where the non-hunters who are wondering why is it that you do this thing, we need a good answer for that. And because it's the as the as the population gets more urban, the idea of hunting becomes more alien, and we have to build bridges to the majority of our society that to whom that feels alien. And it's like in it very calm words. You know, this is why we do it, and this is why we're doing it, and and these are the fruits of our of our labors, and. Um, I think if we have a, uh, if we do our job right and we have a book that, that explains that in very real terms, I think we might be able to make a little bit of a difference.
0: I love it and try as I might, I'm not going to be able to say it any better than that, Hank. So I can, uh, I'll just leave it at that and say, that I can't wait to read it. It's going to be awesome. Thank you. So the last thing, that uh we've got for people is i am holding in my hands right now a copy of buck buck moose and it actually has your autograph in it hank i wish i could keep it for myself but we're not going to do that we're going to give it away (laughs) to one of the listeners uh one of the listeners of this podcast so thank you for handing this off to courtney from be alive outdoors we are excited to give it away to the listeners and i will explain that uh to the listeners in the intro of the show so they will have already heard this but tell the lucky winner of this book what he's going to find what he or she is going to find in buck buck moose
1: so buck buck moose is the book i wrote to cover all things with horns and antlers so it's 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 my venison cookbook. It covers everything, all different kinds of deer, antelope, caribou, elk, moose, that sort of stuff. And it is a a celebration of the fact that every culture on earth hunts something like a deer. And so deer hunting is part of what made us human. And that celebration is is realize in kitchens all over the globe and so it's a comprehensive look at not only you know from the moment the deer hits the grounds because it involves all of the the field care that you need to know and it has a very long butchering section and and what to do in terms of storage and how to cut it and how not to cut it um, but it has recipes for every single cut every single cut of the deer uh, and from all over the world and it's it, we're really proud of this book and it's, it's done pretty well, I'm, I'm very happy to say.
0: It's a beautiful book and I can personally vouch for one of the recipes in it, it would be the venison chili recipe. I didn't make it myself, but at a grouse camp, last fall in northern Minnesota. Uh, props to my buddy Garrett for preparing it. He did a phenomenal job. But we finished both nights, uh, both days of hunting in the woods to uh, Hank Shaw's venison chili. And I can tell you uh, the looks around the table were of uh, the utmost satisfaction. We loved it. It's a fantastic recipe, and there's a whole lot more in the book.
1: I'm pretty proud of that chili recipe. I I, I think that chili recipe may have won more local chili cook-offs and anything else because it if you google venison chili you'll find it on the web yeah. and then yeah. read the comments Every every like two or three weeks, some people like I made this for our cook-off and it won, yay! So it's <laughs> it's, it's we're pretty proud of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, seriously, it is it is absolutely fantastic, and I would encourage anybody to go out and pick up the book simply to try that recipe. But like you said, it is online too. Uh, that is a that is a good one to try. Well, Hank, this was a really fun conversation. I can't thank you enough for joining us. We will definitely have you back because there's lots more to talk about. Thank you so much. Remind us best place to go to read more about what you're up to what you do so the
1: the site that i run is hunter angler gardener cook and you can find that on huntgathercook.com. and probably the most place where my actions at is either in the facebook group called hunts gather cook it is a closed group so tell me uh, that you heard about this on the podcast and i will let you in and the final place would be instagram and i'm on it i probably post to instagram once or twice a day so that's where all kinds of cool stuff of like what I'm doing and where I'm cooking. Uh, and that is at hunt gather cook.
0: All right, Hank, thanks again. I really appreciate it. And we will talk to you very soon. Good luck in Alabama in a couple weeks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward
0: to it. All right, man. Take care. Have a great weekend. You too. You've been listening to the project Upward podcast as your host, Nick Larson. I'd like to thank you tuning in each and every week and i'd like to thank our partners on the project upland podcast bringing you each and every episode of the show pine ridge grouse camp dog truck Callers, gordian sons outfitters Yukonuba premium dog food and dakota 283 kennels Remember, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast post or send us some email. I'd love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email, northwoodscollective.com. Don't forget to head over to projectupland.com to see everything else we've been up to. Films, blogs, articles, gear reviews, and much, much more. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next show.